Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, Roundup regular Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, it's great to see you in a new closet. Good to see you too, Ron. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> Returning to the Roundup is Lene Erickson. Lene is the senior vice president for the social policy and politics program at Third Way. Lene also served on President Obama's advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. Welcome back, Lene. Thanks for having me. Finally, the one and only Mike Madrid. Mike is a national political strategist, our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics, and a former political director of the California Republican Party. Mike, it's great to see you. What's new? It's great to be back with the band. It's good to be back to put (laughs) some music back together, guys. On this week's Roundup, the warning former Vice President Dick Cheney gave his daughter Liz in the minutes leading up to the Capitol attack on January 6th, and what the wilderness-wandering Republican Congresswoman thinks is the answer to our democracy's woes. The Senate's failure to pass voting rights protections and the mansion deal that never was. And finally, we'll talk about the law Ron DeSantis just signed requiring public colleges in Florida to survey students and faculty about their political beliefs. Finally, in the after party, just for our Politicology Plus community, we'll look at the far-fetched plan that could make Donald Trump Speaker of the House without being elected to anything. You won't want to miss this one, so you can subscribe to Politicology Plus right now by going to politicology.com plus or click the link in your show notes. Let's get started. So despite being ousted from House leadership earlier this year, as we've covered, Liz Cheney has not gone quietly. In fact, she's continuing to ring alarm bells about the danger our democracy is in. We learned this week that former Vice President Dick Cheney, Liz Cheney's father, was deeply concerned about his daughter's safety after President Trump said, we're going to get rid of the Liz Cheney's of the world in a speech on the National Mall in the lead up to that attack on the Capitol. And according to the New York Times, Dick Cheney phoned his daughter to voice his concerns right as she took to the House floor to deliver a speech that acknowledged Joe Biden's victory, which she never got the chance to give. We also learned that Liz Cheney spent $58,000 on private security from January to March alone and is often surrounded now by plainclothes bodyguards. She has been saying for months that there are members of her caucus that agree with her on a number of issues surrounding the former president and the big lie, but they vote differently out of concern for their personal safety. And I want us to take a moment at the top here to really digest that fact and address what it means for our democracy. Mike, I want to hear from you first, and then I'm really interested in in really what everybody thinks about this. What does that acknowledgement that we have elected members of Congress who believe one thing, but purely out of concern for their physical safety and the physical safety of their families, are voting a different way. What does that say for the stability of the republic? Well, it doesn't portend well. I mean, it's a very bad sign uh, for democracy when it's basically you're, you're voting under duress, you're voting under threat. And a threat of your own personal life and your own, your own personal safety. That's not the way a democracy works. It literally cannot, by definition, be a functional democracy when that sword of Damocles is hanging over your head. So, look, I, I, I think the Cheney story is really fascinating to me for a number of reasons. And as we've explored here on politicology, um, you know, Cheney's bolting from the Republican caucus uh, and her removal from leadership was, as as I said then, was the beginning of a, mo- a movement, not the end, right, of, mm-hmm. of Liz Cheney's rise. Mm-hmm. History will, first of all, let me say this, and I believe this to my core, history is going to view Liz Cheney very positively, but the next stage of her career is going to be extraordinarily difficult uh, because she's not going to go quietly into the night. She is going to be a strong voice within that caucus as long as she holds that seat, and that's a question. But as long as she holds that seat, she will be a voice for democracy at a time in American history where that means you have to spend $60,000 a month to protect your life 
to speak freely about what we all saw plainly and evidentiary with our own eyes. So this is yet another troubling sign about the state of our democracy. I'm very careful and very methodical about the way that I'm phrasing that. I'm going to stop, and if I'm I want you all to hold me accountable, saying that if we don't change ways, our democracy is in trouble. Our democracy is deep, deep in trouble. It's past, it's past the warning sign phase. We are now at the phase where we're going to have to begin reconstructing our democratic institutions, which, and I'll wrap up on this, Ron, sorry about the long Not answer. It's like a champagne bottle you know, built <laughs> we up over the last few weeks without talking about this, but but you know, <laughs> Cheney, Cheney's not one going to go away quietly. But but two, she's going to be standing in there as a champion for the institution. And by the institution, I don't mean Congress. I mean the institution of democracy. When you are not able to vote freely as members because your life is under duress, I think of governments and fledgling democracies in the developing world where organized crime and opposition parties hold, again, your life, your children, your family uh, in, in, in ransom to make sure that you're voting uh, appropriately. This is happening now. It's happening today in the United States, and it's happening to a member of what was once Republican royalty. The, the Cheneys are as blue chip as you get in Republican politics. And if this can happen to them, it should surprise us not one bit that it's happening to other members of Congress as well. Lucy, over to you. You know, what is it that we say? We reap what we sow. Is that a heartless thing to say? Mm. I mean, one of the things that I think makes the Cheney story so interesting is thinking about Dick Cheney and kind of the lead up to where we are now as a country and all the things that establishment Republicans and the broader conservative movement. And I count myself as a former member of that. We're not paying attention to. And, you know, Liz Cheney went along with this longer than some others, but for much less time than many who are still going along with it. So I agree with Mike that Liz Cheney will be remembered positively. And I, I don't disagree with anything that that Mike said, but Part of why we're talking about Liz Cheney is because of her family history and that that provides such a sharp contrast in, in what has happened. But that family history is also, to some degree, part of what has given Liz Cheney cover on, on some level. And so I don't think that Liz Cheney's bravery is a bellwether for you know more Republicans standing up like Liz Cheney. I, I think that as long as you have a caucus that is so, so committed to the big lie, there, there's no, there's no getting around that yeah. <laughs> with, with this, with this set of Republicans that are in power today. So Lene, I think both Lucy and Mike are right. And I think both things can be true. Um, especially Lucy, if you consider the fact that Liz Cheney voted for Trump in November. That is yes. that is still true. Given everything that we knew, everything that we saw in the four years leading up to that election, she still held her nose and voted for him. So, Lene, I'm wondering what you think about this. You know, I mean, there's not much to add about uh, the state of democracy in the Republican Party. It's very bad. Um, but what this makes me think about is really the asymmetry in our politics right now. Because when you look at the left, you you have a lot of people talking about how the left is bullying Joe Biden or Chuck Schumer or Joe Manchin. But nobody's afraid to vote uh, based on fears for their life or their family's safety. You know, Joe Manchin pissed off a lot of people this week and he didn't get death threats. And I think we we so often see the equation of kind of the extremes on both sides of the aisle. And and it's just not the case that um, that, you know, folks, even far left activists on on the Democratic side are not threatening people. And so I, I think this is it's a really different kind of, you know, place that we find ourselves in. And, um, you know, and it, it reminds us why we shouldn't um, kind of equate the bases of the two parties at this point, because one is having arguments about policy and the other is threatening people's lives. Yeah. Okay. So I want to zoom out a little bit and talk about 
you know, well, first of all, one of the phrases that has been most reported uh, over the last week is is her use of the term constitution boot camp, which she suggests should be required for freshman members of Congress. And she insinuates that the lack of civic education is dire, not just among the public, but Congress itself. And first of all, I think she's right generally about the lack of civic education. Mike, you and I have talked about this uh, at length for uh, almost a year now. Um, but you know, some some training seminars for freshman Congress people isn't going to solve what's plaguing our democracy. That sort of treats a sim. Although I think it should be a barrier to entry. If you're going to vote on legislation, you should understand the rules of the road here. But that just treats a symptom and not the cause. And so there was this other really great um, piece by Jennifer Rubin earlier this week that I just want to quote from, and then I want to go around the table here and see what you guys think about this. So Jennifer writes. Cheney and her small band of reality-based Republicans, as well as current and former Republican governors and respected former judges, would do well to insinuate themselves into the right-wing media diet of GOP voters. Painful as it might be, they need to go on the programs hosted by the worst purveyors of falsehoods and explain elementary aspects of American government. They also need to bring civics and history instruction to evangelical churches and religious news outlets. The point is not to further politicize churches, but to help congregants badly in need of a primer on why they should value democracy. And so I, I, I think we know that the, that the, you know, the people we elect to Congress here are, are really a manifestation of the deep, deep illness that we have. And so I wonder We've talked about the the near impossibility of of reinstituting civic education in this country and healing this uh, this illness. But I wonder, Mike, uh, especially what you think about getting more of these Liz Cheney type Republicans into the information ecosystem that the that the deeply ill informed are consuming on a regular basis. There is no constitution nor is there any framework of government anywhere on the planet or in human history that can last without the support of its own people. When a people are not committed to constitutional principles, that government's not going to be around very long. That is what the problem is. It's not a problem of information or not being educated or being uh, ill-informed about the Constitution. Hell, half of these members of the Republican caucus used to carry around pocket constitutions yeah. as part of a political prop. These people are extraordinarily well-versed in the Constitution. Uh, they know exactly what the Constitution means and what it stands for. They are consciously choosing not to support that for political purposes. And that is what the bigger problem is. And that is a problem that, that no amount of education is going to solve for. Fundamentally, what we have in this country is a cultural problem that is driving an undermining of what we have held dear for the past 250 years as Americans. American society has changed. I also don't believe for a moment that it's specific to this country. We're witnessing a global phenomenon and a global change that is affecting humanity across the globe. The question is, can American democracy and our constitution withstand or adapt to those changes? The evidence so far doesn't look very good. Yeah. Lucy, how do you think about this? Well, God bless Jen Rubin and her optimism about what is and what is not fixable. But when I heard that this this idea that sort of we just need to give better better lessons in civics, I felt like it's a little late for that. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, 2016 called and it wants its newfangled idea back. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think that as Mike has talked about a lot, we have to deal and and I have spent so much time on this because I so did not want this to be true. I mean, in 2016, in 2017, in 2018, in 2019, when I was involved in a campaign to kind of win back the hearts and minds of the Republican base, I so did not want to conclude that it's white grievance, right? It's it's culture wars, because that just seems like too easy or like lazy. I thought, well, it must be more nuanced than that. And it really is not. It really is not. Whether or not Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene really, really understand the Constitution, that doesn't matter. I mean, Tom Cotton does. Mike Lee does. Josh Hawley does. 
So it's not a matter of, of uneducated policymakers. It really comes down to a commitment on the right of playing to the lowest common denominator. And I think it also comes down to this question of how we do or do not let populism become a driving force to the degree that we have any say about that. I mean, the train maybe has already left the station on on any number of these issues. And and we haven't seen before this kind of um, marriage of of the right wing and populism in, in quite the same way. So I do think that thinking about some of those cultural institutions, I mean, slightly far afield, but very connected to this in many ways is that in the past week, the uh, Southern Baptist Convention met and they actually rejected um, several pushes to kind of condemn critical race theory, um, to condemn kind of hardcore right-wing talking points about the threat of Marxism. and, and, And that is not that is not the forum where you would expect to see that. And so I think that there, there are bright spots, but the idea that is, it is just as simple as teaching people better civics and that, and that, you know, that's, that's more of avoiding the crux of the issue to me. Lene, last word on this topic. Is it ignorance? Is it malice? Or is it ignorance exploited by malice? Uh, I think it's definitely both. <laughs> we, you know, I I have this very vivid memory of going into uh, a member of Congress's office uh, who is no longer in Congress, but uh, I walked in and I saw on his desk, a Republican, uh, a book that was called The Constitution for Dummies. This is a real thing that happened. And so I think there are some folks that don't know what they're talking about in the House, um, probably on both sides of the aisle, frankly, but uh, but one is using it uh, for much worse purposes. Um, but, you know, to Lucy's point, Josh Hawley went to Harvard. Like, he knows how the Constitution works. This is not a problem of No, he didn't. I, I have to tell you, he did. I have to defend Harvard. <laughs> Josh Hawley did not go to Harvard. Harvard has a lot of terrible alums. Josh Hawley went to Stanford and Yale. Just want to put that out there. We'll take Pompeo. Oh, thank you. Okay. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, wait, DeSantis went to Harvard? He went to Harvard Law. Oh, God. Oh, God. Well, uh, we're going to get to that. That's horrifying. But yeah, the point... But yeah, the point is there are people within this movement who understand what they're doing and they're using it for uh, ill will. And it's, you know, there's no amount of civic education that's going to fix that. Okay, let's talk about voting rights. Despite the recent flashes in the pan of bipartisanship in the Senate, we've covered previously Democrats sweeping voting rights legislation. The For the People Act failed in the Senate as expected on a 50-50 party line vote. And actually that vote was just to advance debate. It was not even an up or down vote on the bill itself. The bill was co-sponsored by every Democrat except Joe Manchin, who put forth his own good faith attempt at a more moderate proposal before it was laughed out of the Republican caucus. So Lene, why don't you start us off here? Where does this rejection leave the fight for protecting the right to vote? And and feel free to to provide as many qualifications as you want, because I know there's, you know, that's a very broad term and there was a lot in this bill and there was less in Manchin's bill. But what are the prospects in general now, given the backdrop of the conversation we just had of actually doing something at the federal level to protect voting rights? Well, you know, I think the prospects of getting the For the People Act uh, across the line in the Senate are very low, but they always have been. I mean, from the beginning of the year, Cinema and Manchin were extremely clear over and over again that they were not going to vote to end the filibuster. And so, um, you know, the For the People Act has never had a single Republican you know, co-sponsor or supporter. Uh, and that was kind of the end of the story. So the fact that we've, you know, gone this far on it um, is, you know, this isn't news. We always knew it was going to get, yeah. you know, 50 votes or less and that it needed 60. So, you know, there's there's nothing new there. Um, but, you know, I do think it's, it's interesting. I also think there's no possible way that Republicans are going to compromise on this. So the idea that you're going to have a bipartisan compromise on infrastructure, that seems 
potentially doable. On voting rights, no way. It's just not going to yeah. happen. Yeah. Um, because Mitch McConnell wants to keep power and this bill would let more people vote and that would be bad for him. So, <laughs> you know, there's it's kind of a non-starter. Um, but I do think that, you know, there are... The thing that surprised me most this week that I read was actually a rundown of the state laws that had been passed uh, around voting. And what it, it surprisingly showed was that there were just as many laws that were passed to expand voting in the last year as have been uh, to, to restrict it. And the places that have voted to restrict it, you know, there's a couple of bad examples, but uh, most of the restrictions aren't really that bad. So I think we also so overhype this idea that, you know, democracy is crumbling all around us because people can't vote. And and the Republicans are doing it on purpose. They want to look like they're doing something. But what they've actually accomplished at the state level, I think, is much more limited than what their rhetoric would would advance. And so, you know, maybe this isn't as big of an emergency as we think it is. Mike, I know you had some reservations about the original bill. What did you make of Manchin's proposal? But also, like, I'm wondering if the tactic of bringing this, of pushing so hard on this For the People Act, which Democrats knew they were not going to get across the line, actually serves as a useful political tool going into the midterms. And if it's something that Democrats can campaign on and if it's going to sufficiently mobilize turnout. Well, first, let me say I'm so grateful for Lene for saying what she said, because not only is she correct, 100% correct about what's happening at the state level, but perhaps more importantly, I'm usually the one who gets kind of the negative comments on <laughs> no. Voting Rights Act whenever I talk <laughs> candidly and say, these are the facts of what is happening here. So, Lene, they're coming for you this time. I'm going to point in your direction. Um, look, I'm going to speak as a, as a professional campaign operative here first yep. and yep. foremost. All of these problems, and if not all, 95% of these problems go away if you have a strong, robust, and uh, equal Democratic base turnout to what Republicans turn out with their voters, okay? Mm -hmm. So restricting absentee balloting, for example, in one state or another, while I've worked against that my entire career, again, Full qualifier there. I've voted to, you know, worked rather to expand the franchise for the past 30 years, especially with unrepresented or disproportionately unrepresented communities. All of this stuff goes away. Most of it goes away if we get turnout from base Democratic votes. That is the best way to stop what is happening with the Republican Party. Okay. That, that is where you should be investing your money and your resources, by the way, at this moment in time, if you really care about this stuff. Don't be giving to candidates right now. Don't, there's no reason for that. You should be funding operations. Find out who's going to be doing big turnout operations in the states that you care about and fund those. Build the infrastructure. Right now. Yeah, absolutely. We were, we're a year and a half out of the midterms or you know, a good year out of these things, out of most primaries. You should be funding and building to build infrastructure in those states. Now, again, having said that, thanks again, Lene. She's exactly right. There are states that are expanding the franchise as much as and many as there are states that are limiting the franchise. But even those that are limiting them and a lot of the the the, the uh, solutions that are presented uh, in in the um, in this Voting Rights Act bill can largely be um, overcome by strong, solid infrastructure from campaigns, but perhaps most importantly, good, robust, on-the-ground operations to make sure that people are actually turning out. That's where the focus should be. If we spent 90% of the energy of taking away from wringing our hands over what is happening with Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema and why the filibuster needs to go away and instead spent it on actually building the infrastructure for campaigns, this wouldn't be a problem. We wouldn't be having this discussion. We wouldn't be nearly as worried as we are about it because we'd be actually be doing something about it. It's a really good point. Lucy, Manchin made his proposal in good faith. And he went to Republicans, he went to Mitch McConnell specifically, in good faith, and they couldn't have said no fast enough. And so I wonder what you think this says about trying to find common ground when it comes to anything regarding voting rights. Well, I think that we have to separate ongoing questions about what should or shouldn't happen on the filibuster front from sort of broader messaging around these issues. One is kind of 
inside baseball, the, the filibuster stuff. And then one is kind of how the two parties appear to the general public. And so I totally understand Democrats' ongoing frustration with Manchin about the filibuster. We've talked about that a lot before on politicology. But I think that actually, in a lot of ways, Manchin really scored a win for Democrats this week because he did go to the table and say, here are some of the provisions I'm going to support, including things that are considered really quite right wing, but are actually quite popular among most Americans. Like so voter ID like laws. Voter yeah. ID, right. Yeah. And in fact, it, it it even led to kind of a moment where Stacey Abrams, who was like, you know, enemy number one for Republica, Republicans on v- voting rights, had an opportunity to come out and appear very moderate and say, I'm not even opposed to voter ID, you know, yeah. that's, and and so now Republicans are still doing, they're kind of still behaving in the way that they are over kind of like the, as, as though Manchin is AOC, right? right? That, like, right. and so I do think that that was effective. And, and I do think that that was a win. It, it really shows what hypocrites Republicans are. And this whole, discussion over voting rights continues to do that. I was thinking about this week about the irony about how now their big sort of uh, retort to any kind of attempt by Democrats to get anything done on this issue is to say, no, 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 we need to leave this up to the states. And that is kind of like peak irony when you think about January 6th. And all of the lawsuits between November and January, which were basically like taking issue with fundamentally with states making changes to vote by mail or sort of like election hours in a global pandemic. Right. Mm -hmm. So do you leave it up to the states or do you not leave it up to the states? Right. So from a messaging perspective, I think that this week was a win for Democrats. And hopefully that can get translated into getting something passed sooner rather than later. So, Mike, I just want to return to the point you were making earlier because I feel like we're missing something here, which is that Republicans are going to continue to make it harder to vote. They're going to move in that direction because it's the only way they can win. So all of this is not to say that Republicans aren't intentionally trying to disenfranchise as many voters as possible because the fewer people that vote, the better it is for them. Yeah. And let me I, I, thank you for that, Ron. Sometimes I think you kind of help me out because maybe I'm not conveying my point as clearly as I should. You are 100 percent correct. The Republican Party is trying to make it as hard as possible for people to vote. There's no question about that, because, as you just accurately pointed out, it's the only way they can win. Low turnout elections favor Republicans. Okay, that in large part is why the midterms are going to are look, at least at this point, look so promising for Republicans. The best counter to that, again, they're going to do everything they can institutionally and structurally to make that the case, okay? They're going to try to narrow the amount of polling places. They're going to try to narrow the amount of absentee ballots. The truth of the matter is, again, as a professional operative who's done this for 30 years and has seen campaigns at the highest levels on both sides of how these things work, the actual results of what they're getting in terms of disenfranchising voters is extremely de minimis. and, And I say that again, before the hate mail comes, it doesn't mean I support it. It doesn't mean that I stand for it. I have spent three decades vehemently opposing these efforts and working against them, and I still remain doing that. But what I'm telling you- I think as one example to that, before you continue, just so that our listeners can sort of access what you mean by that, we should should just talk about uh, voter ID as an example, because this is one measure that's been really, uh, really demonized yeah. um, in the in the media. But actually, if you look at the studies of the impact that voter ID laws have, it's extremely small. Of it, course. It, it has a very, very small impact. Yeah. And it's one of those things where, yeah, it's bad. I think someone noted this in, in some of our in, in some of our prep today. Um uh, it's bad policy because it solves a problem that doesn't really exist, meaning there is no widespread voter fraud. And so this is a you know a, a solution in search of a problem. But it also doesn't have a tremendous impact on turnout at the end of the day. And so it makes for a good bargaining chip between Democrats and Republicans. But it, it, we'll yeah, set that aside. I, Go ahead. I, I, no, no, this is really, really important. I'm glad you brought this up. Yeah. I actually talked with Susan Del Percio a lot about this. Yeah. Uh, look, 
and again, <laughs> knowing what potential blowback might come. Well, I let think me, it's me, important that we explain. Yeah, that we no, I'm not afraid of it. Here. I'm not afraid of it. As you know, I'll take I'll take yeah. the criticism here. But, yeah. but let, let me say this really, really. This there is a very easy solution, but both sides are vested in continuing this boogeyman problem to drive their own turnout. So let me tell you what the solution is. You don't you don't need the Voting Rights Act bill. Okay, you don't. Here's how you solve the problem. You do two things, and you don't do one or the other. You do two things. One, you mandate a universal ID program. Okay? Now, once everybody everybody lights their hair on fire. I know, yeah. Okay? You have to do it along with universal voter registration when everybody turns 18. Why we are registering voters still is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It is beyond me. Every American citizen who is 18 should automatically be registered to vote. We have the technology, people. We can do this. In fact, in places like Mexico, where I've done some political work, they have that exact same system, okay? (laughs) Everybody has a voter ID card in Mexico. And when you ask Mexican voters about and tell them, you know, is this a a problem? It's inconceivable to Mexicans Hmm. that you would not have a voter ID when you actually show up and vote, like it's it's inconceivable. It's a point of pride the way that we put the I voted sticker yeah. on our shirts and post them on Facebook. You see the same dynamic with people with their voter ID cards. Yeah. But okay? you also get it automatically. And you and that's the point, is yeah. you have to get it vote automatically. You can't do one or the other because it's a cudgel, like you right. just said. It's a political weapon that both sides use to weaponize this. If we instituted mandatory voter ID and universal voter registration where everybody is automatically registered to vote, you solve an extraordinarily large amount of the problems presented, not only in this bill, but the ones that the political professionals have been making hay about for the past five, six, eight, ten decades, and will continue until we solve uh, for this problem in that way. That's how you solve it. It's not that complicated. Both sides don't want the problem solved. They yep. want the boogeyman. They want the threat. Look, Democrats want the threat. They want the, the the narrative that Republicans are trying and succeeding in some cases of suppressing the vote. I'm not saying uh, it's not a because it drives call. up turnout. It drives yeah, turnout as a tactic. It's effective. Uh, and absolutely, yes. I get it. I understand why they're doing it. Yep. And Republicans will say that voter fraud is occurring and dead people are voting and uh, undocumented citizens are voting and mm-hmm. felons are voting and who, this it's all bullshit. <laughs> yes. but, it, but it's a scare tactic used to mobilize their own base. So both sides use these scare tactics to mobilize people. If you really want to solve the problem and take the political weapon out of both hands, give both people what they want because like you just said, in terms of practical outcomes of campaigns, they're extraordinarily marginal. Mm-hmm. extremely marginal. Mm-hmm. Put in voter ID. It's not going to change a damn thing. You don't have people who don't have, if you give a voter ID to literally every eligible citizen and we have the technology to do that, Mexico has the technology to do that. Okay. If we do that, you take that weapon away and you expand the universe of the amount of people that can vote. You, you triple or quadruple the amount of people who can actually vote. That's what we should be focused on people. It's not that complicated. Let me just jump in here on two points. One is, um, you know, we we've both uh, Mike and I talked about the um, limited number of people that are impacted by these kinds of laws. And that that's true. I don't think that there there's uh, a lot of outcomes in races that are being changed because of these laws. But I will say the right to vote is fundamental. And so if there is one person who is being disenfranchised by these laws that should be able to vote, that's a huge problem problem. That's a moral problem. It's a constitutional problem. So for me, that's why I support, you know, these kinds of reforms. And, you know, I just think that uh, we shouldn't think about it just as how is it going to impact the partisanship of of the vote? We're talking about uh, an American's fundamental right to vote. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not trying to you know, diminish the problem that we have here. But I think the the thing that is so funny to me is all of the political consultants on both sides think that this, um, that more voters equals more Democrats. 
And that just wasn't true in 2020. Correct. So I I don't know why we haven't questioned our assumptions around that because, you know, you you hear all the time, oh, every new voter is a Democratic voter, basically. Mm. And and this political fight is premised on that idea. But it was completely undermined. We saw uh, low propensity voters come out in droves for Donald Trump. So I just wonder if the whole thing needs to be rethought because Democrats are assuming every time I get out a new voter, they're voting for me didn't turn out to be true. Uh, and and Republicans are thinking every new voter is voting for the Democrats. Also not true. Yeah. So why are we still stuck in this kind of uh, assumption in 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 our operating assumptions about this issue? That's a great point. Amen. That is really well said. Yeah. Uh, Lucy, last last word. I'm going to double down. I'm going to double down. I'm going to sort of pull the haters to me even more than Mike has already. <laughs> I agree with everything that has been said here, except for one thing. I I actually really disagree with the premise that even if one voter is disenfranchised, that, that that's the litmus test, that yes, the right to vote is fundamental. It is fundamental. But everything in policy, in public policy, is a continuum, right? I mean, um, national security, right? It's a, con- it's a continuum between safety and security, right? We should absolutely do everything we can to maximize people's right to vote, but we should do everything we can to make it easy. We should have universal ID, universal voter registration. We should make it as easy as possible for people to basically go walk into the poll for the first time and vote same day. But I think that if we're going to get anything done on this, we have to be realistic that if it takes a tiny bit of energy for people to vote, that's okay. If it means curing your ballot, that's okay. And so I think that Democrats would really do well to be pragmatic in in some of the messaging here to sort of say, yeah, it's it's okay to treat voting like it's a thing that might that 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 it it it's 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 never going to be perfect, right? So let's get as close to perfect as we can because that's sort of what resonates with most people, and I think that that's how Democrats can be on the side of this debate of as I think Manchin has this week, frankly, of being the reasonable sort of consensus building um, party that represents the middle. Yeah, except that that doesn't make for good rhetoric. (laughs) (laughs) Voting, it's never going to be perfect. (laughs) Look, the same (laughs) argument about, you know, every vote being disenfranchised and the the right to vote fundamental, absolutely correct. But how can we never hear Democrats say that about election fraud? It's the same exact mm. argument, and it's absolutely true, okay? Mm. Every vote that's stolen is, a, is undermines the system. It undermines integrity, and it takes away from the enfranchisement of everybody else. Does it happen on a grand scale? Absolutely not. But should it be stopped even in the one few isolated incidents where it happens? Of course it should. That's not even debatable. Why not do both? And stop both sides from polarizing this thing. Mm. It's so de minimis of what is happening on both sides. And again, this is where I get attacked. It was like, <laughs> oh, you're not following or you're lying or you're shilling for the Republicans. It's like, no, I've spent 30 years actually doing this, not just talking about it. Okay. This is not that complicated a fix. And Lene is absolutely right. Every vo- voter that is disenfranchised takes away from the premise that the voting that voting is fundamental. Absolutely right. So is election fraud. It's the same exact argument. So quit splitting hairs because you're looking for partisan advantage. And again, beautiful point made by Lene. I, I'm showing my age here. In 1992, when voter or 1993, when the voter motor voter bill was passed, Republicans thought that was going to be the end of the Republican Party. Because all of these new Democratic voters were going to show up and vote, and they're going to swamp the system and uh, you know overwhelm overwhelm our voting. Of course, none of that happened. Yeah. Of course, none of that happened. We just had the highest voter turnout in the history of American presidential elections that benefited Republicans down ticket. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's yeah. no evidence to suggest that new voters are all Democrats. Yeah. Okay. It's also, I think, incumbent upon us to tell our listeners that we're having this discussion through the lens of people who practice politics as professionals and not as sort of, you know, like if if you're listening to this conversation on the news, right, this would be a completely different conversation, right? People would be on talking points. We're talking about this as people who actually right work in campaigns and, and understand how these how these things can be used as political tools. 
Uh, and Mike, I, 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 I think what you're saying, I, like, I, I appreciate it. I just don't think it's going to happen because the problem is too good to fight over. Right. It's, it's almost the same way I used to look at immigration. Like the fight over immigration exactly. is just too profitable for both sides to, to, uh, to have. Exactly. And, and because of that, there's no incentive to solve it. And this is another one of those things. It is so useful. It is such a mobilizing tool when it comes to actually running and winning campaigns yep. to use these boogeymen to turn out the base on both sides that, um, it's, it's all, it's, it's like, it's too useful to set down. So, uh, uh, yeah. Look, that's one of the problems of hyper-politicization yeah. is there's more incentive in not having a solution because it mobilizes your base to, to make people either scared or angry at the other side. Yeah, You're either so afraid of what they're going to do, Republicans afraid that you know the undocumented are going to show up and vote the way Donald Trump says, like in California, millions right. of undocumented <laughs> citizens showed up and voted, right? right? Or you get angry at them. You, 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 you turn them into an enemy. Yeah. And both sides are complicit in this. And I, I would argue they're equally complicit, by the way. May, may disagree on this panel. I disagree with that foundationally. We, you know, they are absolutely both equally complicit in this, including calls for violence. That is happening on both sides. It's a, it's a bottom-up problem. It's not a right-left problem. And it's something we need to start taking very seriously as a society or it's going to rip this democratic institution apart. <sighs> okay. On Tuesday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a law requiring public universities to assess viewpoint diversity, I'm using air quotes, on campus annually by using a survey created by the State Board of Education. According to the bill, the survey will ascertain, quote, the extent to which competing ideas and perspectives are presented at public universities and colleges, whether and whether students, faculty, and staff feel free to express beliefs and viewpoints on campus and in the classroom. DeSantis claimed that the survey is to prevent colleges and universities from becoming hotbeds for stale ideology. That's what he called it. The bill does not identify questions for the survey or potential sanctions for universities, but DeSantis has hinted that it could result in schools losing funding. He also didn't provide details as to why the survey was necessary. He provided vague anecdotes like, he knows a lot of parents who are worried that their children will be indoctrinated at college and that universities are promoting orthodoxies. Clay Calvert, who runs a First Amendment project at the University of Florida, told the Washington Post that the Florida law could be a model for other conservative-led states. He told the Post, quote, I think the answer is that it is being mandated because it gives a conservative state legislative body a tool to withhold funding from a university that, based upon the survey results, seems to discriminate against conservative viewpoints. This comes two weeks after the Florida State Board of Education uh, banned critical race theory from public school classrooms at DeSantis's urging. So what's the motivation behind a law like this? Who is DeSantis trying to appeal to with this? Um, Lucy, I think I want to hear from you first. One of the things I was thinking about when I read about this bill is how when Donald Trump was elected in 2016, I remember saying the the harm he is going to do to the country is not really uh, legislatively, it's culturally, right? And sort of it's it's going to be harmful to our cultural institutions. And a lot of people were saying that was not like an original take. But part of why I felt that way was what is what kind of mountains is Donald Trump going to move to like get the House and the Senate to pass things that make a huge difference? And he really didn't. He really didn't. I mean, you can sort of think about like trade policies, stuff here and there. It, it was not that incidental. And that was because he was overseeing the federal government, not a state government, right? And I am a huge proponent of federalism and have lobbied in over 30 states. State government is what really impacts people's daily lives. And part of what Ron, why Ron DeSantis, this proto-Trump, is such a monster whom we should be afraid of, is that he can really make policy and get things through impacts people very, very quickly and really not only has a cultural impact, but really, really changes how large institutions. I mean, Florida is a massive state. Florida has large universities. And so 
why is he doing it? I mean, for the same reason that any of these people do anything, right? It uh, wins over right-wing pundits. It helps them raise money, not to go back to the culture wars, but culture wars, culture wars, culture wars. And I've been thinking a lot about, this is kind of a flashback, but how, and I know it's, it's different players and it's different stakes, but how in a way the kind of fight over critical race theory is a lot like the fight a decade ago over common core, right? Mm -hmm. It's this incredibly common core was, you know, our kids are going to have to learn to do multiplication in just such a screwy way. How will they ever, how will they ever live? And somehow we've now managed to teach kids algebra even. Um, (laughs) It's amazing. It's amazing. It became this rallying cry, right? And it's a rallying cry to parents, to communities that just plays to people's most base fears. And it's kind of weird because it plays to the idea that we have to do things the way we always did them, right? However, we taught our kids um, parts of speech is how we should always teach them parts of speech. But however, we always, it's just the stakes feel higher because now it's about however we talk to our kids about race or identity or ethnicity, that must be, that's what we feel comfortable with. So let's keep doing that. Yeah. But the the context of a university in in the backdrop of this bill is weird because there are just so many questions over how it would be implemented. And, and, you know, good points made this week about how the people who are most likely to participate in this survey are like aggrieved right wing Mm -hmm. college students who are going to tell you how bad everything is. Everyone knows college students, college aged people tend to be more liberal. So if what Ron DeSantis is looking for our kind of uh, data to reinforce his <laughs> viewpoint, I'm sure he'll find it. He will yeah. absolutely find it. So from a fundraising perspective, it's going to be the gift that keeps on giving for him. It's giving to him today. It's going to give to him tomorrow, next year, because he will be able to keep kind of pulling out these examples of, you know, the world is going to hell in a handbasket and your kid's college dorm is ground zero. Yeah. Lene. According to the Miami Herald, there's no guarantee that the survey answers are going to be anonymous and there's no clarity on who will actually be able to use the data and what they can use the data for. This to me feels, you know, one step removed from book burning. Um, But what do you what do you think the dangers are to actual freedom of speech and freedom of expression when the government is collecting this this kind of data without any safeguards? Well, I think there's an even scarier piece, which is that it also said that students can film faculty members and then publish what they're doing. And uh, and so I just think that, that you know, to Lucy's point about aggrieved students, like you're a professor, you're trying to talk about, you know, current events, knowing that someone in your classroom might be filming you and your university might lose money from the government because of it. And I just think that's that's a very scary thing that I'd, I'd be petrified to talk about anything that was happening in current events and politics, knowing that, you know, Tucker Carlson and Ron DeSantis need to approve of every single thing I say. Like, Mm. that's not, (laughs) that's not, you know, a a particularly great position to be in as a faculty member. Um, And I think it'll, it'll affect university administrators as well. But, you know, I think uh, the, the point that Lucy made about, about Common Core Common Core had the same kind of um, feeling about it as these debates do, but Common Core was actually a thing. Like uh, Common Core was a point. thing. <laughs> yeah, and <Good> point. <laughs> the thing that I the thing that I find so fascinating about this is no school in Florida was teaching critical race theory. No school anywhere is teaching critical race theory at the public school level. It's not happening. So now we're like just literally making things up to legislate against. And, um, and you know, to me, it reminds me actually of the debates around marriage equality when people were talking about, we're going to teach gay sex in first grade. Like it's happening in Massachusetts. It's going to happen in your town. And we're like, nobody's teaching gay sex in first grade, but that was the ad. Um, And, and this is more like that where like that, that's not a thing. 
And yet we're going to have, you know, 50,000 reams of writing about it and coverage about it. And, you know, there was a, a like one of the um, uh, school board meetings got violent in Loudoun mm. County, Virginia, um, like this past week. There were people were arrested at the school board meeting. Um, so it is it's very, very hot and it's going to continue to be. Um, but it's all made up. Mm. Mike. So this, you know, the reason this came to my attention in the first place was because our friend Ann Applebaum tweeted about it and something that she, the way she framed this story when it popped up for me was basically like, you know, something like, well, I guess we're not practicing fascism anymore. We're, we're, we're doing the real thing. Right. And it's time, you know, time for full fledged fascism. So this, you know, taken as an isolated incident, okay, fine. This is going to be a controversy that'll play out in the news media for a while. Right. But it's part of a big pattern. And if you, again, zoom out and look at all the data points we have now of, as you said, our democracy being in trouble, the warning signs are long in the rearview mirror, right? Correct. We're in it now. Um, there's, there, there's a couple of ways, there's a couple of angles that I'd love you to look at this from first as sort of a, you know, fundamental, what does this mean for the way we participate in, in democracy? And what does it mean that we have, you know, essentially students being able to cancel the professors for talking about controversial ideas. Mm -hmm. Right. But also as a, as a, as a tactical tool for Republicans to use in what is now inherently a fight over culture. And that's what they're going to be fighting in the midterms and beyond over, right? It's not on policy. It's all culture. And this to me feels like a really useful cudgel, um, in that, in that fight. So take it away. So, so yeah, that's exactly right. And again, as we've explored a little bit demographically, I think that the next 20 years in American politics are going to be defined almost exclusively by culture wars because culture now has become synonymous with race. Uh, as we go through this demographic transformation, it's also becoming synonymous with class, economic class and disenfranchisement. So look, uh, a couple of things. One, first of all, what DeSantis is doing is essentially Maoist in in tone. It's it's what the cultural revolution in China was all about. Mm. It's what, what the hardliners, the religious hardliners during the Iranian revolution of 1979 were doing. It's an attack on the intellectual class. It's an attack on the academy. It's an attack on expertise, which we have seen growing and growing over the past five to six years in this country. And it's designed because it's designed to do those attacks because, as I've said before, the Republican Party is a countercultural movement. Mm -hmm. It is designed to attack those institutions. And there are two very, very favorite objects of Republican scorn. The first is the university, the, the intellectual class, right? This is the, the, the cultural elites. This is where this all starts in the mind of, of the Republican politician is you've got to take down the university system, the, the academy, the, the liberal uh, Harvard and Yale you know, elites. Yeah. Sorry, Lucy. But you've got to bring these folks down. <laughs> she's, she's Mike. <laughs> so, and the, the irony is most of these people are Ivy League grads anyway, I right? Know, yes. That's the, that's the great irony is now they're, they're the ones that are going to tear it down for the common man. Yeah. The second is Hollywood. It's the media, right? And so these attacks focus. And because why? Because Hollywood sets – the, what they create cult culture. They create culture. Yeah. There's our cultural norms. Yeah. And so these increasingly are going to become flashpoints for the American right in, a, in opposing and standing in opposition to both of these. Why, why the academy? Why, why the university system? Well, Lene said it very well because it's, it's viewed and it's easily digestible as an attack on the young people. Right, these vulnerable, gullible people who don't know anything better, and threatening people's "quote unquote" children is a very salient attack. Whether it's Common Core or whether she, when she was talking earlier about the "quote unquote" gay agenda that mm -hmm. every you know we're trying to, to frighten people with, or whether it's vaccine hesitancy, you know they're going to inject our kids with these foreign substances. When you start to talk about people's kids and taking away parental control, it's perhaps one of the easiest ways to attack government. So th this issue, and again. It, this is purely performative politics. There is no substantive policy here. 
that's by design. It's not a real policy solution because there's no real policy problem. It's, it's the next Dr. Seuss. It's the next Mr. Potato Head. It's the next empty boogeyman threat that is talking about the cultural change that people are afraid of. Critical race theory. That's you know something that is so nebulous in concept. No one's teaching it. No one's driving this agenda. Um, it will ultimately buckle once it's a they, proxy. It's a proxy. It's yeah. a well put. That's exactly what it is. Like so many other issues, it will run its course once they wring out every last blood out of the turnip on this one. But they'll move on to two or three or four different other ones by the time that we get there. The goal is to keep finding the next proxy to keep the party relevant. Yeah. I agree. Okay. Sorry. I agree with all of that, except it is like the, the, the only thing I'd add to that, Mike, is that it is a proxy, but it's now a proxy that's being solved with actual legislation. And yeah. that legislation is dangerous. And well, so it's, you see what I mean? It's not just, yeah. we're not just fighting about it in the media now. We're not just fighting about it in culture. This isn't just public opinion. This is no, no law. And I'm and saying that, yeah. that makes me worried. And what's important is to understand that this will increasingly be used as, as tools. Yeah. Th these types of empty laws are going to continually be pushed out because this is what gives them th the great irony of this. And this was kind of the rise of Pat Buchanan during my age and generation was these conservatives that are so concerned about social change mm -hmm. and progressive movements. And I mean that with a lowercase P progressive change in society use are trying to use government to control and stop change. <laughs> yeah. They're using the weapons of government to bully people into not changing. Yeah. yeah. And that's the great irony of people who consider themselves conservatives. This weapon, the weapon of government is going to increasingly going to be used as I said at the beginning of this diatribe, over the next 20 years, as we go through this demographic and cultural transformation by people that are hell-bent on seeing that America is, quote-unquote, great again mm. or does not change ever mm. and remains what it used to be or, or gets back to this mythical notion of what America should be. Um, the, the, the weapons of government for cultural mm. issues is going to be not only – foremost at the minds of the Republican politicians, at some point it's going to be exclusively yeah. those issues. There yeah. is no other economic agenda. There's no trade agenda. There's no public health agenda. There's no other agenda other than a purely cultural agenda. So that really reminds me of uh, something that someone really smart said to me a few months ago, and I think it might have been Lucy on the last time we were on together. Um, but it was this idea that Democrats uh, feel frustrated because they think the political system uh, is underweighting their numerical power, that mm. it is, um, you know, that, that it is lessening the power they should have through, you know, the Senate and other things that um, that dilute uh, the actual strength of their power. We should be getting more for what we have. And Republicans are frustrated because they think the same thing is happening to them culturally, that they are in the majority culturally, and yet business and Hollywood and these other, um, you know, these actors in culture are not listening to them, to, and they're not being represented in the numbers that they truly have on some of these issues. That means that the problem that Republican politicians are saying they're going to solve is a cultural one that they can't solve. Mm. So when is it ever going to end? <laughs> yeah. Never, but they will continue to use the weapons of government to try and fight it. Okay, we were going to talk about Tucker Carlson today, but we're not going to talk about Tucker Carlson today. <laughs> we we kind of just did, actually. We did. <laughs> we did. <laughs> uh, but that's fine. We don't need to talk about Tucker Carlson. Now that we're up to speed on the biggest stories of the week. What stories are you following? Which, by the way, he he just doesn't qualify as one of the biggest stories of the week. So there we go. Um, what stories are you following that may have flown under the radar that may influence our politics in some unexpected way? Lucy? Oh, my gosh. I feel on the spot because there are so many under the radar stories from Peter Thiel turning $1,600 into billions in his Roth IRA to the cheerleader thing. But I actually am kind of felt like hit by a truck following the free Britney coverage this week. 
And I think it's really interesting. And I think that it is. I'm glad you're, I'm glad this is your, I'm go. Yeah. I'm glad this is your thing. It raises so many questions. So for those who haven't been following, Britney Spears has been under a conservatorship since 2008 and under a conservatorship where her primary conservator until recently was her father, who seems to generally be kind of a not great guy. Um, and more recently, also um, a, a duel with a financial management firm. Um, and she finally got her kind of day in co- court, quote unquote, yesterday and kind of detailed um, just sort of what she's been through and and uh, kind of like how her ongoing mental health challenges have been used against her. And there are all these people around her who also, you know, have an investment in Britney Spears continuing to grow her enormous wealth. And she's such a sort of once in a generation talent that of course she has the means sort of by her voice as a performer to grow her wealth. And she feels enslaved by these people who have been managing her. Um, She wants to be let out from under the conservatorship, which is a very unusual um, structure to have in the first place. It's usually used for old people who can't manage their own finances anymore, can't make basic life decisions. She's arguing that, um, you know, she obviously, she's a person who has many, many people on payroll. So she's at least somewhat able to take care of herself. Um, It really struck me and and it was a real follow-on to the documentary about Britney Spears that the New York Times did some months ago. But I think it raises a lot of questions about kind of, um, to show my age, what millennials came up in and and Britney Spears talked a lot about how, you know, she hasn't really even thought that saying things were terrible was an option, right? Mm. I, I thought about people who grew up in like the 80s and 90s and this kind of, whether it's something like American exceptionalism or what we thought it would be like for women or people of color or people in the LGBT community, this idea that everything was great, everything's getting so much better. And Britney Spears was like this icon of of kind of female empowerment. And in fact, she is being used and manipulated and victimized by the system as much as anyone. Mm. So I think it could create a much bigger discussion about mental health, how we approach those issues, but it's also just kind of a moment to pause and check in with yourself and think like, how, how am I doing? Mm. And it's also a good chance to go back and listen to a lot of early 2000s Britney songs, which will take on a whole new meaning, like my prerogative piece of me. It just, I suggest that as, as weekend, weekend listening, early 2000s Britney. You brought it this week. That was, I I like that one. (laughs) Lene. Yeah. The thing that I wanted to bring to folks' attention is way less interesting than that. So we should probably just stay on Britney Spears. But uh, (laughs) if you are a political nerd, one of the things that uh, I've been watching this week is a leaked document that came out from uh, from Senator Bernie Sanders, and it is comparing uh, what he is thinking about putting in a reconciliation package compared to what Joe Biden proposed in the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan. And so it is a line-by-line comparison of what Congress might put in a reconciliation bill versus what the White House asked for. And there are some very interesting additions, including, for example, legalizing essential workers and dreamers, including, you know, putting the age of Medicare eligibility down to 60, all kinds of things that weren't in Joe Biden's plans. Now, if Bernie Sanders, he's the he's the head of the budget committee, so he gets to put together this reconciliation package, um, which gives him a huge amount of power <laughs> mm-hmm. in determining what Democrats are going to be debating. Um, he can put it out there and the chairs of those committees can decide to put those things in the bill or not. But by putting it out there, he's going to create a huge splash and and a huge amount of pressure. You know, if uh, if a Democratic committee chair is suddenly arguing, well, we can't do uh, immigration in this bill. Well, yeah, you can. Bernie Sanders put it in there. So I think it really opens up uh, a conversation about what is this reconciliation package going to look like? Uh, we're, we should find out uh, right after the 
the recess in July. And then we're going to be talking about that for the rest of the year. And I think it's going to go far beyond where Joe Biden had proposed, even though Joe Biden's proposal was huge. That's a really smart look ahead. I like that one. Mike, what do you got? Well, mine's a little bit different than both Britney Spears and Bernie Sanders. So I'm going to try my best here. Um, Does it start with a B? Um, it does not, um, but there is a B involved, uh, that B being Beijing and kind of the crackdown Ooh. on um, the shutdown of the largest pro-democracy paper, Apple Daily. This. Um, this is a frightening development yeah. um, for a whole host of reasons. So for those that have not followed this tidbit of news, I would urge you strongly to kind of tune in. The Apple Daily is the largest pro-democracy newspaper in Hong Kong. It has announced that it is shutting down. Because of Beijing's pressure, China, mainland China's pressure on the paper and the crackdowns, uh, the, the pro-democracy crackdowns, which have largely been credited towards the news that the Apple Daily was being was put out. Uh, the owner, uh, Jimmy Lai, has been imprisoned. Um, five members of the editorial board have been arrested. $2.3 million in fines have been levied. And columnists are being kind of stalked at their homes um, as the paper um, has been ground to ground to a halt, this is a, a new phase in direct attacks on the press, especially uh, those that are viewed as a threat or enemy to the state. It may sound like it's just typical activity on behalf of the Chinese government, but if you watch the trajectory of what China has been involved in, we should all be extraordinarily alarmed. For two 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 examples of that, again, this being I think the third. The first was uh, we have to remember that when Joe Biden gave his first address to the joint session of Congress, he mentioned specifically President Xi and some of his conversations where President Xi was basically saying that they smell blood in the water and they do not believe that democracy has much longer to exist. Biden, I think, pushed back, at least in his speech, as much as he forcefully could. But the fact that the president of the United States was saying this on the floor of Congress was a uh, – clarion call to all of us that are concerned about democracy globally. The second dynamic is that Russia and China are actively engaged in joint military operations, specifically in the South China Sea. They're comparing and sharing military technology, cyber technology, and the China-Russia relationship is closer than it has probably ever been in both of those countries' histories, which if you follow China at all, you'll know China's been around a very, very long time. It's a very long mm -hmm. history. Mm -hmm. So all of these developments are showing that the two largest authoritarian regimes in this world are working together to shut down democratic, small d, democratic efforts around the globe. The fact that they were successful in Hong Kong is, um, again, a frightening development. It's one that we need to be mindful of. I'm going to say this with no amount of hyperbole because I believe it's to my core. Democracy is dying. I think we are far, far down the road towards losing democratic governments, not just our own American-style democracy, but um, international democratic regimes. And if there isn't a global coalition put together to work in united front, um, I think we um, – are on the verge of, of some very um, harrowing days ahead. So that, on that bright note, I, I'll leave that. Uh, Mike, that was going to be message. my story, and I'm glad you brought it. And just as a chaser to that, um, I just want to read this quote that Ray Dalio put out uh, for everybody. By the way, Ray Dalio, founder of Bridgewater, one of the largest and most successful uh, hedge funds in history. And he's essentially made it so successful by studying history to predict uh, economic futures. And, um, and this is what he said, from studying history, we can see that reversing a declining power is very difficult because that requires undoing a lot that has already been done. Before I let you go, where can people find you on the internet? Mike? Follow me on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. Lucy? On Twitter, at Lucy M. Caldwell. Lene? And I'm at Lene Erickson. And I'm at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home or on the go for listening. If you're not already in our Politicology Plus community, you can unlock today's bonus segment and much more at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions for us, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. 
You can also help us by rating and reviewing the show wherever you get your podcasts and by sharing this episode. And make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at PoliticologyPod. I'll see you in the next episode.